Welcome to the Left Right Forward Show. Business and political solutions with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Welcome back. This is the Left Right Forward Show, and I am Delano Lewis. We're looking at business and political solutions, but today we're going to talk about, you can say it is political, but it's certainly societal and it's certainly a current issue, and it's all about immigration and immigration reform. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And I'm very excited about my guest who's going to be discussing this issue and helping us to understand it. Uh, He's uniquely qualified to be talking about immigration and immigration reform. Uh, He was the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security under President Obama. I'd like to welcome to the show Secretary Jay Johnson. Welcome, Mr. Secretary. Ambassador, great to have uh, the opportunity to speak with you. I look forward to our discussion. Well, thank you so much. I am so pleased that uh, you have agreed to join our show. Uh, This issue of immigration is just daily. We get uh, reports of what's going on in our southern border. And you had the big job of trying to manage or managing the Department of Homeland Security. Would you just, first of all, before we talk about that, I I think it's important if you give us a snapshot of your background and then give us a little sense of uh, DHS. Sure thing. Um, I'm a lawyer. Uh, I have returned to private law practice. I am uh, a corporate lawyer in New York City, where I was uh, born. I was raised in the Hudson Valley in New York State, just a few miles north of here. Wonderful. And I've been in public service four separate times. (laughs) I was an assistant Assistant U.S. Attorney, a federal prosecutor here in Manhattan 30 years ago, hired by Rudy Giuliani, served alongside some great friends and uh, distinguished Americans like Jim Comey and Pat Fitzgerald and Dave Kelly and Fran Townsend, Louis Free. It was a great time to be a federal prosecutor in Manhattan. And I returned to this law firm in 1992. I became the firm's first African-American partner in 1994, and then uh, six years later, I was recruited by the Clinton administration to serve in that administration about the same time you did, and I served as general counsel of the U.S. Air Force for the last 27 months of the Clinton administration, returned to this law firm again in 2001. And then five years later, I met uh, a freshman U.S. senator by the name of Barack Obama in 2006. It was at a fundraiser that I was doing in my hometown of Montclair, New Jersey, Mm -hmm. for Senator Bob Menendez. And and, uh, Senator Obama came as sort of the star power for the event, and that's where we met. We struck up a friendship. And then in November 06, he asked me if I would support his campaign. And by then I had made up my mind that I was definitely going to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I was part of his campaign and then his transition and then his administration. And wow. I served the first four years of the Obama administration as general counsel of the Department of Defense. And then I returned to this law firm again for what I thought was the last time I would leave government. And then just a few months later, he asked me if I would return to his administration and become Secretary of Homeland Security. I was shocked to be asked. I never sought that position, never asked for it. And uh, so I served for three years in that role. DHS is the third largest department of our 
government with 230,000 personnel, 22 components. Wow. Um, it is it's smaller than the Department of Defense, obviously, but it is very decentralized with vastly different cultures. It includes the Coast Guard, FEMA, the Secret Service, the immigration components, Customs Border Protection, Immigration Customs Enforcement, uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services, and of course, TSA. Everybody knows TSA. Right. And DHS also has the cybersecurity mission and a host of other things. So uh, it is a very big job and a very uh, large decentralized department and um, one that uh, requires that you you keep your hands in a lot of different pies at any one time. But <clears throat> immigration, counterterrorism, cybersecurity, I would say, were the three principal um, preoccupations I had at the time and the 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 three main uh, subjects of my focus while I was at DHS. Wonderful. We're going to come back to that in, in, in greater detail, but um, I, for our listeners, I'm just always curious with such an amazing uh, uh, career. Uh, just take us back uh, a little bit about your motivations and vision of growing up in, uh, in, in, in New York, New Jersey area and becoming uh, the lawyer and doing the things that you've done. Just give us a sense of what, well, that's what that was about. Interesting question. Uh, I was born in 1957, a baby boomer. Right. And everybody, and I'm sure you could tell me your answer to this question, everybody has a moment or a period or a year when they have a political awakening and they're shaped by it. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was the year 1968. And I don't have to tell you, a lot happened in 1968. Right. Vietnam War, the Tet Offensive, LBJ's withdrawal, King's assassination, RFK's entry into the race, mm -hmm. RFK's assassination. We all remember the images of his funeral and the funeral train, the conventions. We got a color TV set in my house. I was, I was 10 going on 11. We got a color TV in my house that year, and I was just fascinated by the political conventions. Humphrey, Nixon. And then, of course, wow. Wallace, the election culminating with Apollo 8. Mm -hmm. I was also fascinated by the space program, and Apollo 8 was the first mission in space to leave the Earth's orbit and orbit around the moon. And you'll remember the images at Christmas time back of the planet Earth from the moon's orbit. Sure do. And all of that helped me to realize that there was this larger world around me in my little comfortable nest in upstate New York. And it was at that point I thought that I wanted to do something to be involved in national political events. And I was actually a lousy student in high school. <laughs> right. I was a C and D student in high school. Uh, despite 1968, I lacked any real motivation. For the longest time, I was convinced I was going to be a left fielder for the New York Mets. <laughs> and that's all I needed. That's all I needed to prepare for. Right. And I got to Morehouse College, and Morehouse inspired me. The the sermons, the speeches, the aura of Dr. King. Right. You could still free. You could still feel his presence almost on campus. I had been taught by teachers who taught him. 
Mm-hmm. I had been taught by teachers who had taught his father, who had been around so long. And I went to school with Marty, Martin Luther King III. Mm-hmm. And so it was an inspirational time to be at, at Morehouse College. I was in class with Spike Lee, in addition to Marty, and John Wilson, who would later become president of Morehouse College. Wow. And it was impossible not to be uh, infected mm-hmm. by the energy, the ambition, the spirit. And so I entered Morehouse, a D student. I left an A student and knew I wanted to be a lawyer and perhaps go into politics and government service. So that really was what motivated me and shaped me to put me on the the career path that I ultimately set out on. Well, that is that is a fantastic story. And I I just thought our listeners would would appreciate that. We're talking to Jay Johnson, former secretary of the department. Homeland Security under President Obama, and I just can't help uh, with goosebumps uh, because I had similar experiences in my life. I'm a little bit older, but many of those things you said resonated because I was a lawyer working in the Department of Justice when Bobby Kennedy uh, was the AG and JFK was the president. So I came at it uh, at a very different time, but I completely understand those motivations. I also had high school uh, mentors that gave me that kind of inspiration that you founded Morehouse. And I must tell you, I've heard so many other Morehouse graduates speak very highly like you do about the school. And certainly we know that uh, Dr. King was quite a, quite a, 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 a very model, a role model for that institution. Uh, you can always tell a Morehouse man. <laughs> you can tell a Morehouse man, first, by how they are dressed. Right. Uh, second, they all have business cards, even before they have a business. <laughs> and third, Morehouse men know exactly what they want to do, where they are going, and how they're going to get there. Oh, that 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 is incredible. That is absolutely incredible. And then we also have something in common in dealing with the law with the FBI, because I was in the Justice Department, uh, not... Uh, in an internal security division, and we work with the FBI. And uh, then when I was in South Africa, Louis Free came through, and he was director of the FBI, and I held a reception for him at the ambassador's residence in uh, in South Africa. So well, you, yeah. I'll, tell you I'll, I'll tell you one other thing, and one other footnote to this discussion, and then I'm sure we'll get down to business. Yes, we point. will. Yes, we will. My own, grand, my own grandfather has an FBI file. Wow. Which is now public. My grandfather... Dr. Charles S. Johnson was mm-hmm. a sociologist. He was president of Fisk University. Um, he wrote a lot about civil rights and race relations in the late 40s and 50s. And as I'm sure you know, if you were a black man with a PhD in that period of time and you wrote a lot about civil rights and you know you consorted with all these radical factory, uh, faculty <laughs> members at black colleges, um, you were suspected of being perhaps a communist. Yes, so unfortunately. my own grandfather, the grandfather of a person who became Secretary of Homeland Security, had to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1949 and denied under oath he was a member of the Communist Party and had an FBI file, which is one of the reasons why I believe our country is so great, Mm -hmm. that we we can evolve and progress in this fashion in the space of just three generations and move continually toward a more perfect union. Well, you're absolutely correct. And the fact that the two of us as African-Americans who were trained as lawyers in this country, who are now involved in discussing on this podcast one of the issues of our time, immigration. 
shows that there has been progress. And I must say to you, uh, I'd like to learn a lot more about your time. And I know our listeners would, your time as secretary. First of all, to be a cabinet secretary uh, is a very, very prestigious and important position. And I'd like for you to give a sense of that um, and what it's like to be a cabinet secretary in the Obama administration. And then tell us, what were the, what were the issues that were challenging to you uh, at the time that you were the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security? And then we'll go to, to the present day. Wow, what a question. <laughs> okay, so um, as I'm talking to you, sitting in my office in New York City, I'm looking at my cabinet chair, oh. uh, which was my chair in the cabinet room at the White House, which was given to me as I left. Wonderful. I never, I never thought I would be a member of a president's cabinet. And mm-hmm. so almost every day I was in office, particularly days when I had to go to the White House, I said to myself, never forget how special this is. Right. And so you're at the you're at the top of government uh serving directly the president of the United States. And that was just a remarkably special experience. I never took it for granted. People ask me, "Well, how did you persevere? How did you survive such a difficult job?" One of the ways is you know it's finite. I know it's finite because I'm a political appointee. I serve at the pleasure of that president. And I had an app on my phone that counted down the days, hours, minutes (laughs) until the end of the Obama administration on January 20, 2017. But it's, you know, it's special. And, you know, it's special. I did have some fun. Homeland Security was a load of headaches, but I did have fun throwing out a first pitch at a baseball game, uh, interviews like this, mm-hmm. um, naturalization ceremonies, oh, were yes. always special, yes. uh, administering the oath to new citizens, including people who were already serving our country in uniform, right. who were not quite citizens yet. Mm-hmm. And so it was a it was a special thing being in a president's cabinet. Um, Barack Obama was and is a, an extraordinarily special gifted person. He is a very intelligent man. He is a, a deep thinker. He is reasonable. And he encouraged uh, a dialogue, a rich dialogue between and among his cabinet members and advisors. And even when I was sub-cabinet level, when I was the general counsel of the Department of Defense, and I would go to the White House, to the Situation Room, for meetings as the the plus one, as they say in Washington. (laughs) Right, right. Where I'm accompanying the Secretary of Defense. Mm -hmm. He would always encourage the backbenchers to speak up if they had a point of view or something to contribute. And so when you're a cabinet officer, you have effectively three jobs, maybe four. One is to be the CEO of your cabinet-level department. Mm -hmm. Two is to be the president's representative to that cabinet department because you're there to fulfill and advance his agenda. Three, to be the cabinet department's representative to the president and the White House and represent their point of views at the White House, and four, to be an advisor. Uh, as Secretary of Homeland Security, I was a member of the National Security Council, mm-hmm. so you're there to be an advisor, and, and I told myself when I joined the Obama administration from the beginning that 
<clears throat> I was going to do my best to give this president my honest views, uh, even if it was something that I thought people didn't want to hear, as long as I had an intelligent, well-thought-out point of view, because you just don't lob things out there uh, in a National Security Council meeting. But I was going to give him my honest advice and my honest views. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that this president um, particularly appreciated that from the members of his cabinet and his, his close circle. And that was an example I tried to follow when I was at DHS. I always liked a rich, robust discussion, people that I knew would disagree, because out of that you get the, the healthiest decision-making. If Good you feel you. like you've Absolutely. heard all points of view. That is very special. Did we lose and you? And of course, you Go know, ahead. meeting meeting the head of the occasional head of state, going to a state dinner, was always special. Um, it was just a remarkable time, one I could never repeat again in this lifetime. Well, I could certainly understand it, and it had similarities to my position as the ambassador, and I had the same, the exact same feelings. Uh, you probably worked uh, very close with Susan Rice, who was with the yes, of course, yes. And Susan was Assistant Secretary of Africa when I was uh, the ambassador, so. Um, I can understand the, the the caliber of the folks that you were dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, tell me, yep. uh, tell me again about uh, how you approached the job. Obviously, you approached it uh, allowing your managers to participate. Uh, but did you set uh, a programmatic objectives? Did you have a vision for what you wanted to achieve? And you mentioned uh, three areas that really preoccupied your time. Just walk us through that a bit. Well, a couple things. One, when you're Secretary of Homeland Security, you're always on defense. You're on defense. You're on the defensive team. You're not. You're not there. You're not in a position to to celebrate a lot of victories. You're on defense, mm -hmm. and the nature of it is such that one one mistake or one bad thing is the equivalent of one thousand good things. Wow. And everybody focuses on the bad news and not the good news that may come out of Homeland Security mm -hmm. because they're always on defense. And so it is entirely possible <clears throat> to be solely reactive in the job where you're reacting to events. I kept in my desk drawer uh, uh, a running list of say 10 big things that I wanted to try to do to an advance, to advance an agenda and tried not to forget those things. And I would define a good day as one where most of the meetings on my calendar were meetings that I wanted to advance an affirmative agenda versus simply meetings where somebody needs to come in and see me for a decision or to tell me about a problem. Mm -hmm. And I, I said to myself, <clears throat> you know, it don't get don't get eaten up by by the daily trail of of, of events, and think out of the box once in a while. Uh, and that's that's what I tried to do. Occasionally, I would reject the advice of my advisors right. uh, because ultimately, you have to rely on your own your own instincts when you're, you're in a position like that. And I have to remind myself, well, this is why the president put you there. Exactly. Um, the most important part of my day in that job was the first hour. I'd get to work around six 30 in the morning. And first thing I did, there'd be my daily Intel book sitting 
on my desk that my military aide had put there before I even got in. And before I even read the newspapers, I would go through the intel. And if you're Secretary of Homeland Security, that is the most important thing you need to do. And I would absorb the the latest intel about uh, possible threats to the homeland, threats overseas, uh, cybersecurity threats, aviation security threat streams, um, things that are uh, various attacks overseas, because uh, I need to see the intel picture from the homeland point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would include the PDB, the President's Daily Brief. Where there's a copy delivered to certain cabinet members, and I'd go through that. I'd look at the daily apprehension numbers on the southern border from the day before. Uh, and then if I had time left over, <laughs> I would read the newspapers. I would read the newspapers in the order of Washington Post, New York Times, New York Post. Always got to read the New York Post, especially right. the cover. And then Politico, if I had time, mm-hmm. simply to see the editorial commentary and to see how the papers were covering the reality what I knew to be taking place. And then at about 8.30, I'd meet with my, my staff, my briefers, and we go through the Intel book all over again, just to make sure that I saw what I needed to see to ask questions. It was an opportunity for me to ask the analyst a question about something. And that was the most important part of the day. When you're on defense, you have to know uh, what the offensive picture looks like out but, there. But you also kept in mind those 10 things that you had as your vision of uh, that you wanted to accomplish as you were trying to absorb all this information, you still had those yes. 10 things in the desk that say, am I meeting, yes. am I meeting those? Am I getting close? Because I've got to deal with these day to day, but am I, am right. I doing what I really want to do in this job? Of course. And occasionally the agenda gets stalled while That's you right. go <laughs> tend to something else like the Ebola crisis in 2014 or the, the spike in, migration we had on our southern border in the summer of 2014 or a a major cybersecurity uh, attack or something of that nature. So it's easy to get get distracted. Well, that's what I want to talk about. Let's talk specifically about the 2014 uh, assault on the southern border. Would you explain what happened then and what was your reactions? So illegal migration has, over the last 20 years or so, been declining on our southern border. We measure total attempts to cross our southern border by apprehensions. Apprehensions are an indicator of total attempts to cross the border. Mm-hmm. The high for apprehensions, uh, although right now, as you and I speak, we're approaching that high, but the high was fiscal year 2000. There were 1.6 million apprehensions on our southern border. In recent years, including the Obama years, that number has greatly decreased. It's a fraction of what it used to be. So, for example, my second year in office, we saw 330,000 apprehensions, which was the lowest number since, or the second lowest number, I think, since 1972. And that you can attribute to a couple things. One, an improved economy in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll come back to this, but the push factors, the reasons why people leave their circumstances in the first place right. are always the most powerful motivators for illegal migration, the push factors. And so 
over the last 19, 20 years, we've seen an improved economy in Mexico. We have, through multiple administrations, added to our border security more technology, more barrier or wall or fence in the places where it makes sense on the southern border. Important caveat, in the places where it makes sense to have such things, more border patrol agents, so it is much harder now to cross our southern border undetected uh, without apprehension. So the numbers have gone down. But in the meantime, the demographic has greatly changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the demographic has changed significantly. It is no longer single adults from Mexico. It is women, children, families coming from Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. And they're almost always smuggled by uh, coyotes who charge 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 per person to smuggle the migrant through Mexico and across the southern border into Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, or Southern California. Right. And so we saw a spike in spring of 2014. The numbers went up dramatically. The high was 66,000 in May 2014. And so the first question you always ask is why? Why is this happening now? And very often it's because the, the, the smugglers, the coyotes, are putting out messages that are false and creating sort of a frenzied atmosphere. And so we heard they were the coyotes were telling migrants in Central America, you better go now because the Border Patrol is giving out free permisos, passes. Wow. Which is totally, totally false. false. Right. And and that, you know, if you go now, you can be a dreamer. You can you can take advantage of DACA, which is also totally false. Mm-hmm. And it builds on itself. It, there's a snowball effect to it. And um, we did a number of things to address the situation. Uh, the numbers declined pretty significantly. We, we put out messaging about the dangers of the journey into the U.S. We expanded our detention capability, which was controversial. Uh, we told people DACA is not available for those arriving uh, today. And we got the Mexican government to help us on their southern border with Central America through direct engagement by me with my Mexican counterpart and a direct engagement between President Obama and President Peña Nieto of Mexico, the Mexicans stepped up their border security on their southern border, such that by July, August 2014, the crisis was pretty much over. The numbers had dropped way down and stayed low for over a year, which is why I said in 2015, the number was the second lowest since 19. 72, and they pretty much stayed low through 2016, mm-hmm. started to creep up again. And so the, the lesson learned, frankly, when I had this problem, I owned this problem, was when you see a spike like the Trump administration is seeing as you and I speak, mm-hmm. uh, there are certain things you can do um, to change enforcement policy that will have an almost immediate effect because the word will get down to Central America, well, they're doing this or they're doing that. But so long as the underlying conditions exist, the underlying push factors exist, the numbers will almost always revert back to their longer-term trend lines. Well, let me... So so the poverty and violence in Central America is the principal reason why we're seeing uh, these large numbers right now. Well, that's very helpful. Let me just ask a couple of questions because 
This has been very, very helpful to me, and I, I know it is to our listeners. Um, will you mention the uh, controversial efforts? You certainly mentioned border agents. Uh, you mentioned uh, improved economy. You mentioned some of the pluses, use of more technology. Uh, two questions. One, I gave you a lot there in that answer. Sorry. That's right. That's all right. But, but, but then you mentioned there was one that was a little more controversial, uh, and that was the expanding uh, uh, detentions. Um, would you go back yep. and talk about that a bit? Because that is what's happening well, today, and I want to I want to get a sense of your feeling about it. Well, that. The, the current administration is doing a lot of things I disagree with. So oh. let me make that perfectly clear. Okay. I think they're going about this all wrong. Uh, they're seeing numbers way higher than we saw. Uh, even though this is a central component of President Trump's agenda, um, illegal migration now, as we speak, is at levels that we have not seen in in years, if not decades. But <clears throat> we were in 2014 uh, funded to 34,000 detention beds. That's how you measure detention space by detention beds. 34,000, only 95 of which. 95, 95 were equipped for family units because we built our detention capability to accommodate single adults, mostly single male adults, and that demographic had changed. So we expanded family unit detention uh, along with our, our greater detention capability, um, and that had very definitely an impact. I should emphasize that even with that expanded capability, you don't have the the capability to detain um, 40, 50, 60,000 a month. Most people are released. Um, and one of the ways we dealt with that was in addition to expanding detention capability, we expanded the use of, of ankle bracelets, community-based supervision, um, but the expansion of our detention capability was, was controversial, mm -hmm. uh, and such that by 2015, uh, we began to reform our practices to make the, sh the stays shorter, um, so that these facilities were used more as processing centers so that we could screen people for, for health reasons, for making assessments of, of risk of light, of flight. And then we got a court decision in a case called Flores, uh, which I disagreed with then and disagree with now that essentially limited our detention capability to 20 days uh, on average per migrant, which the current administration is still living with. Wow. But listen, uh, I have to ask this question. We're talking to uh, former Secretary Jay Johnson. Uh, he was Secretary of uh, Department of Homeland Security uh, under the Obama administration. Uh, you mentioned there were several things. This one was controversial on detentions. Uh, did you have a policy of separating uh, the families and separating no. children? Yep. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. uh, that was not, I want to make that very clear. Absolutely not. Um, occasionally we hear from this president, this administration, well, the Obama administration did it too. That is absolutely not true. Um, we had no policy of separating families. We had no zero tolerance policy, which, by the way, is impossible to bring about anyway. Right. You cannot prosecute every single person that crosses the southern border illegally even at normal levels. There's not enough capability in the federal judicial system to do that. But we, I encouraged my people, as I told you earlier, to 
generate ideas, bring me ideas, anything that's legal. And, you know, separating families was one of them, but it was something that was quickly rejected by me and the Obama White House is just something we we would not do and could not do. I had been to the southern border enough to have these images of women literally clinging to their babies after they had made that long journey. And I could not separate a a child from its mother, nor could I ask uh, an immigration enforcement agent or a border patrol agent to do the same. So that was just a place we were not willing to go. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, uh, The other one, obviously, what our listeners, I'm sure, who keep up on this issue would be interested, uh, your view about the wall. We've heard so much uh, uh, about the wall and monies for the wall, and Congress has said no, uh, but yet uh, this president... uh, is trying to shift some monies from your old agency DOD into uh, building the wall. So I, yep. I have a couple of questions you on that. The effectiveness of, of, of quote, the wall, and then uh, the whole business of shifting monies from one pot to the other on the part of the executive. What's, yep. your, what's so, your, your comments? So ask any Border Patrol expert, and I did a lot for three years, mm-hmm. um, what do you need? What more do we need? The first thing they'll always tell you is more surveillance capability, more technology, technology at the ports, the bridges to detect things that are being smuggled in large trucks or in the backs of vehicles. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally you'll hear more border patrol agents, more aerial surveillance, more maritime surveillance, more boats, uh, but mobile surveillance technology and capability to detect changing patterns in illegal migration across the 1,900-mile border, um, and perhaps perhaps uh, more barriers in the places where it makes sense to have more barriers, either to fortify an existing structure, to replace an existing structure. Uh, But there are a lot of places on our southern border where it simply does not make sense to have a fence or a wall. What sense does it make to have a 30-foot wall on top of a 10,000-foot mountain? Right. Uh, and you cannot have a wall in the Rio Grande Valley. The Rio Grande is a very, very windy river, and you can't put a wall there. Mm-hmm. Uh, nor is it easy to put a wall across uh, southern Texas uh, near the Rio Grande because you'll spend years in litigation trying to take private property away from the ranchers, which they don't want. And so there is smart border security. There are smart investments in taxpayer money to strengthen our border security. I'm quite sure that there are people at DHS, at CBP, who could tell you this mm-hmm. and who could give you chapter and verse on how to strengthen our border security. But just building a wall for the sake of building a wall is a nice rallying cry. It's a nice bumper sticker, um, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in practice. I found it very significant that early this year, during the whole talks to resolve the the government shutdown, Mm -hmm. the the Republican-controlled Senate, the Republican-controlled Senate, each time they came back with a proposal to fund border security, uh, emphasized more technology, but not more wall. Uh, If there was some wall, it might be to fortify or something like that. But even the Republican-controlled Senate was not going to give President Trump all of the wall that he wanted. 
Now, let's talk about how you fund all this. Right. It is possible, even when Congress does not appropriate money for a specific account, like a wall or aviation security or uh, disaster relief, it is possible to for a cabinet secretary to do what we refer to in Washington as a reprogramming of money, where you in light of an unanticipated circumstance, move money from account A to account B, which I did a number of times, but you should ask first. You you write a letter to your appropriation committee of oversight and you say, because of this, I need to move money from A to B. So, for example, 2016, you may remember we had the long lines at the airports right. uh, going through TSA because of higher travel volumes. And so we needed to hire more TSOs immediately. Mm-hmm. And so I did a reprogramming of money. I wrote my appropriators and said, I got to move money from A to B and let me know if you have an objection. And they would say, no, I don't have an objection. If you make your case, Congress ought to let you do it. And, you know, President Trump complains about working with a divided Congress. Well, guess what? Uh, I had to work with a divided Congress. All three years I was secretary, I dealt with a Republican House. And for the last two out of the three years, I dealt with a Republican Senate. But if you make your case, then uh, the members, the appropriators, and the appropriators tend not to be overly partisan. Right. in their work, um, they'll, they'll agree with you. But that, that's how you can legally move money um, from one account to another. It is extraordinary to move money from one department to another. I don't think most fiscal lawyers would tell you you can do that. Uh, and I thought that the authority that was invoked for moving money from DOD to DHS for the wall, uh, and I'm going to sound like a lawyer here, 10 U.S.C. 2808, I thought that using that was really trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Uh, That that provision uh, for moving money in an emergency was really intended for use by the military overseas uh, when there's an unanticipated um, deployment of forces and you need more capability overseas in the deployed areas. Department of Defense can build that capability even though it had been not it not been specifically appropriated by Congress. That's really what it's for. Right. And I used to tell my lawyers at DOD and DHS, if we're too aggressive in using an authority for something, Congress in the next cycle is going to take it away from us. Exactly. So you got to you got to be responsible with this. Well, I really appreciate that. And using your lawyer hat, I think is a is a real asset. I happen to be a member of that club, but I I certainly uh, respect your your analysis here because the president is taking is at least proposing taking money from DOD to uh, to put to DHS for the wall, and uh, that's going to be decided by the courts. But I, I'm not so sure that's going to happen because the appropriations, as you quite rightly put out, rest with with Congress. They're, 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 well, yeah, the courts they're, they're, could say, and they are saying, this. hey, this is kind of a political question. This is a fight between the Congress and the executive branch. I'm going to stay out of this. They could, they could, but I'm not so sure because the appropriators, that's in the constitution that the appropriation, uh, starts and ends with, uh, with, with the U S Congress. But anyway, let's shift for a second. Um, uh, this has been very, very helpful again to our listeners. We're talking to former secretary of 
uh, uh, Homeland Security, uh, Jay Johnson. He was uh, secretary under the Obama administration. Let's talk. You'd mentioned before about the Dreamers um, and uh, DACA, deferred action on uh, uh, early arrivals. Um, um, and tell me, tell me about your, your view of, uh, of DACA and... Uh, I'm sorry, deferred action on childhood arrivals, <laughs> DACA. Right. Uh, what's, your, right. what's your feeling, which, which they call the dreamers? Uh, what's your feeling so, about, about that? So DACA was created in June 2012 by President Obama and my predecessor, Janet Napolitano. And it is a case-by-case assessment of an application by someone who came here as a child who's been in this country for more than five years um, for what we refer to as deferred action. Deferred action is not a real legal status. It's not like being a lawful permanent resident. It simply says that for two years, I will not deport you provided you live within the parameters of this program. Mm -hmm. And so they have to come back every two years and get renewal. And, this is this has been a very successful program. Um, you have some very responsible young adults who came here as children who have applied to the program. Under my watch, it reached a membership of about seven hundred fifty thousand people. Wow! And you have you have you know the so-called dreamers who are doing remarkable things. They're in school. I've met dreamers at Ivy League law schools, and right. and. The program was created through executive action by the president and the secretary without an act of Congress. Mm -hmm. It would be on a more solid legal footing if Congress simply authorized it. And what is so frustrating to watch is that if you put it on the House and Senate floor tomorrow, I'm sure you'd get the votes to codify and authorize DACA. You know, the, mm-hmm. clearly, I think, last time I looked, the majority of both houses agree that we ought to we ought to protect the dreamers. Mm-hmm. We ought to do something for people who came here as kids who are de facto Americans, who work, who 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 go to school among us. Our kids know people who are dreamers in school. We ought to do something for these people, and we haven't been able to. It's part of my frustration to watch the political acrimony. Uh, in Washington right now, we can't do this. Even the president said at certain points he wants to protect the dreamers. And President Obama and I in 2014 wanted to expand upon the program to expand the parameters of it and create a whole separate program called DAPA, Deferred Action for Parenthood Arrivals, to protect the parents of people who are U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents. Uh, That program immediately became the subject of litigation. And unfortunately, we did not prevail by just one vote. We did not prevail uh, at the Supreme Court. Wow. But it's unfortunate that Congress cannot get this done. Um, Everybody agrees we ought to protect the kids. We ought to protect the dreamers. And there's a flip side to this. I'll never forget, I was in Honduras in 2016 and our ambassador down there wanted me to meet people who had been deported back to Honduras from the United States. And there was a young man I met there who came to the United States when he was about age three, 
before, long before there was DACA, long before there was there were Dreamers, and he came with his brother and his mother. And one day, ICE came. This is long before there was any such program. Long before 2012, mm-hmm. one day ICE came and scooped him up and sent him back to Honduras after he had become a teenager. Wow. And really, the United States was the only country he knew. And he was de facto American. He was a New York Giants fan. He grew up right. in New Jersey. He spoke English as well as I do. Right. And with no trace of an accent, except he had a New Jersey accent. <laughs> but he was but he was he was sent back to Honduras to basically put his life back together again in a place that was a strange land to him. And so he had a family. Uh, in addition to the family he left behind in, in New Jersey. And that's that's the tragedy of separating families through our process, which is why I believe that we, you know, at a minimum in immigration reform, ought to protect the, the people who came here as kids who are growing up here who are de facto Americans. They shouldn't live in, a, in an ambiguous legal state for the rest of their lives. Well, you have been very, very generous with your time, and that that sort of leads to the sort of the last item I'd like to chat about, if you if you have if if you would, and that's what yes, sir. what would you see, what would you see in a in a in a comprehensive reform uh, immigration reform package? Uh, what what would you put in such a such a bill? Well, essentially, essentially two things, and essentially. The bill that passed the Senate in 2013, S744, um, this this was a bill, this was comprehensive immigration reform passed by the U.S. Senate just six years ago with 68 votes, which included a lot of Republicans as well as Democrats, and unfortunately failed in the House in 2014. And the two central pillars of it were things that tried to accommodate all the political interest. One was path to citizenship for people who had been here in excess of, I think, 10 years, who could pass a background check, had committed no crimes, were given an opportunity to get online and eventually become citizens. Mm -hmm. So that was one part of it. And the other part of it was increased border security. And I'm afraid that we've gotten away from the notion that if you want to do anything in immigration reform, you've got to accept something that may be politically unpopular with your own base. You know, comprehensive immigration reform means legislative action, and legislative action means political compromise. Right. And we're so polarized when it comes to the immigration debate now that I'm afraid something like that Senate bill, which passed just six years ago, would be unfathomable today. And I remember one day I had a private meeting with Speaker Boehner. It's probably 2014, 15, before he left office. And Speaker Boehner wanted to do comprehensive immigration reform, but he was frustrated because he couldn't get anybody in his caucus to really step forward exercise some political courage and lead on this right. because the immigration issue has become such a red meat, politically polarized issue in this country in the last five years. We just kind of stand across the aisle and scream at each other about it and nothing gets done and nothing will get better as long as that's the case. Well, listen, this is fantastic. I said I had, that was my last question, but that just sort of begs the question 
if I could ask one more, and that is the root causes of the of these immigration issues. When we say we've become polarized and we've been very divisive, I think you started this whole podcast interview with thinking about just why are we here and why has it spiked in 2014 and uh, what are the increase? Why are these increases and what does it mean to America with our policies? But just what are the root causes and what? Uh, aside from comprehensive reform, what 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 else should we be talking about as American well, citizens? Well, when you when you ask what else should we be talking about, you can we, we should talk about the causes, but we also have to talk about the solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I say to you no know, immigration activist, okay, you've made clear what you're against, but you have to also tell me what you're for. Right. What is your plan for immigration reform that has the prospect of broader support among the American people. So the, the first and foremost, the root cause of illegal immigration is the push factors, are the push factors, the poverty and violence in Central America. Uh, Central America, the three countries I referred to earlier, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, it is the most violent region of our planet right now. And exacerbated by the drought they're experiencing now, which devastates the coffee market there. Mm -hmm. And so people are fleeing this country, these countries, because it's dangerous. They have no hope. Exacerbated also by, I'm afraid, the president's own rhetoric. When Mm -hmm. President Trump says, I'm closing the border uh, in a little while, the coyotes stoke that and say, you got to go now because he's going to shut the border down. Right. So what are the answers? Pro- uh, uh, <clears throat> aid to Central America, mm-hmm. uh, the Alliance for Prosperity. It is a program that we started in the prior administration the last year in office to provide aid to Central America. It can be done. Um, you've been in foreign service. I think you know this. Like a planned Columbia. Um, you can aid these countries with a lot of strings attached to make sure it doesn't go to fuel corruption right? and address the problem, uh, address the poverty and violence. And these three countries are not really large countries. It's a relatively discreet part of the world, the Northern Triangle. And so we have to address the root causes because when you're talking about people who are making a decision to flee a burning building. There's no amount of border security you can throw at the problem to convince them not to flee a burning building. Exactly. So you have to address the underlying cause. And I'm told by people in DHS today that the money we began to invest over the last three years was already beginning to make a difference. Incredible. I just two days ago met a former foreign service officer in the embassy in Honduras who told me that the money we started to invest was already beginning to make a difference. Incredible. But this is this is a multi-year investment that has to occur over multiple administrations, Democratic, Republican, and so there has to be a long-term political commitment to do this. And President Trump's decision to cut off that aid is the exact wrong choice if he wants to get to a decrease in illegal migration. Because the message you send when you do that is you have no hope right. that 
Central America has no hope by cutting off aid to these countries. That's incredible. And, and, and the other thing that you mentioned in that, uh, that solution of, of immigration reform and getting to the root cause is bipartisanship. I mean, we cannot yep. do this until we come together, political parties as well as independents, to, to discuss it, to have dialogue, to figure out just how we can do it if we really believe that this makes sense. Absolutely. So yep. listen, you have just been incredible with your time and, uh, and your, your information has been very, very invaluable. So I want to thank you so much uh, for your participation in the podcast. I learned a lot. Uh, this is an important issue of our time. And if we had people like you who talk straight, who know what they're talking about, and who are interested in really coming to a solution, I think we, could, we can get it done. So thank you so much for participating, Secretary Johnson. Thanks for having me, Ambassador. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Bye now. Bye. You have been listening to Left, Right, Forward, Business and Political Solutions with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Today's guest was former Secretary Jay Johnson. He was Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security under the Obama administration. We talked a lot about his background and his vision, and he wanted to serve uh, in government and as a lawyer. He wanted to do things in our government, and he certainly was very successful with the Air Force as, as a general counsel, Department of Defense's general counsel. Uh, but finally, uh, he served with the Obama administration and Department of Homeland Security. He was an expert to say, yes, there are issues at our southern border, but we need to be talking about the root causes of those and come up with a bipartisan immigration reform plan to solve those issues. So I really felt it was valuable information. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Again, you're listening to Left, Right, Forward, Business and Political Solutions with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Till next time, Godspeed.